When you walk into a restaurant, you don't walk in for the sommelier. You walk in because the food is good. That's the chef. Sommeliers are trying to complement that. When you came out with this brand, Inkadu, I really fell in love with it because they complemented the foods. You should never let somebody tell you that you're pairing something incorrectly. If you like it, you go with it. Welcome back to Inkadu. In this episode, we hear from two experts. Phil reunites with Chris Sawyer, a master sommelier who will guide us through Inkadu's red wines. But first, I'm talking with Matt Francis about the chemistry of wine, of food, and the endless possibilities of the two together. Remind us about your background and how it intersects with food and wine chemistry and your work here at Inkadu. So my background is in organic chemistry and biochemistry is what I teach. I also teach an undergraduate course on the chemistry of cooking at Berkeley, and I give lectures sometimes in the community. And I'm enthusiastic about the subject. I want to spread this around. But also, this is a really great way to teach people some chemistry because you learn the chemistry and you've already done the lab, right? Because everybody's familiar with things in the kitchen or food examples. And so it's very easy to connect to people and teach them chemistry concepts because they've already seen it, they've already done it. Because chemistry can be daunting for those of us who don't yeah. teach it. I did not do well in chemistry, but I do well in the kitchen. Yeah, so many people had terrible lab experiences in the more formal setting, and so it's a way to correct for that a bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I think anybody who studies those subjects, an inherent love of structures and compounds and all the many things that you find in nature, and then biochemistry also, you're very interested in the metabolism of nature. Focusing on wine, you have all of the components that are there in the grapes, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of compounds in the grapes and compounds produced as the wine is being fermented by the microorganisms, mostly yeast organisms, but some beneficial bacteria as well. Being a chemist, what you might think then is you want to analyze that down and come up with a strict chemical formula for wine or food or something like that. And that is absolutely not how I approach this. That's not why I'm into it. I'm often asked if you know a lot of chemistry, does that make you a better cook or a better wine connoisseur? And my answer is generally, no, it doesn't. Rather, it's like taking an art history class before you go to the art museum. And if you do that, you get so much more out of the experience because you know what the art is, why they might have made it, what they were going through at the time, the influences behind it. And if you apply that to cooking and drinking wine, you can just sort of taste the process, taste what those molecules might have done or how they might have come together or why this might be different from something else. To me, it just makes it all the more fascinating and all the more fun, and that's why I'm into it. So is everyone, in effect, doing chemistry when they cook? Everybody is doing chemistry when they cook. The most core thing about cooking is heating something up. There's all kinds of chemical changes you're causing. Proteins will change their solubility. So think of an egg that's frying, and it's a liquid thing that mixes with water, and then you fry it, and the proteins will start to glom together and scatter light, and that's why an egg white turns white when you cook it, but it's clear and translucent before so. Or if you think about sushi, how it looks different from cooked fish. So you're changing all of these things just by heating it up. Those basic processes are fairly easily understood with some basic chemistry concepts. Yeah, so the first thing that I would say is you can get really caught up in not making a mistake with pairing the wrong wine with the wrong food. The first piece of advice I would have is to get over that because if you like it, if it works for you, then that is the right pairing for the food. So don't let somebody intimidate you or don't have an imposter syndrome about the wine that you're putting forth in a dinner party because if a wine doesn't pair great with the food to begin with, the great thing about wine is if you just drink a little bit more, it'll pair itself, <laughs> so takes care of that. That said, there are some tried and true combinations, and one way to approach that is to think about the taste sensations, the sensations of the human mouth and also the upper part of the palate are sweet and salty, sour, 
bitter and umami, the savory sense. Those are the classic ones. I think more and more people are starting to believe there is also a sensation for fattiness that you can detect directly and a little less established, but perhaps there are additional receptors for metallic flavors, soapy flavors, and even alcohol. But the classic five, that's where wine has a lot of its interactions with food. And you tend to have a more pleasing experience if you engage more than one of them. They work together. They're not usually the most effective in isolation. And so a great example of that is lemon juice is something you can taste, but it's so sour you can't drink very much of it at all. But if you mix it with sugar, it's lemonade and it's delicious. Right? And so the two balance each other out. You're engaging both receptors at the same time, and that leads to a very pleasant sensation when you taste lemonade. That sort of balance is what we often seek in a wine pairing. So highly acidic white wines, things like Sauvignon Blanc, for example, pair very nicely with fish. And this is for a couple reasons. One is there's a lot of salt, briny flavors in there, and it complements those. And then secondly, it's because the compounds that smell fishy in fish, usually unpleasant smells, are called amines. And those amines react with acids and it neutralizes them. So it's natural that the acid will tone down the fishiness and gets rid of those components. This is why also lemons are usually squeezed on fish. It's the same thing. You're adding a pinch of acid for that. Acids also tend to brighten foods. So a small amount of acid sensation along with other foods is usually good. That's why another use for acidic whites is to lighten a cream sauce. If you have a big, heavy sauce, lots of flavor, lots of fat in there, you can, quote, cut that with some acids. Is that the same principle when you're making a beurre blanc? It's absolutely that same principle. Beurre blanc, hollandaise sauce, many of those sauces have fat mixed in with some acid in there, and so you're combining the two together. Vinaigrette is the classic on a salad. You're pairing the oil, the fattiness, the richness with the, the brightness of the acid. If you get those out of balance then it doesn't taste as good. When you're talking about the taste in the mouth, are you actually tasting it in different parts of the mouth? So it was long thought that you have different regions of the tongue that responded to different flavors. That's actually been debunked. Your taste receptors are distributed throughout the tongue, also in different places of your mouth, also in the upper part of the throat, and sometimes even in the digestive tract. So you can taste in more places than you think you can. But part of what happens immediately with wine and with food is the olfactory sensation is probably the larger player in all of this. You can't taste something without smelling it at the same time. The nasal cavity and the throat are connected directly. The wine moves through, it gets warmed up. These compounds volatilize, they get to your olfactory receptors, and that's where you start to recognize the aromas. Those can be many hundreds of different compounds, not just the five, and that leads to things when you say wine has the character of cherries or raspberries, or maybe it has some spiciness to it, or some herbal characters, some grass and hay and those types of things. Those all come from those olfactory receptors, and they are intrinsically connected with the, the taste and the flavor. So your perception is actually both senses. So I did a fun math calculation the other day, and I, I think this relates to a lot of the interest in wine. So let's just say that you had 20 different flavor components in wine that you could taste. Uh, that's a gross underestimation. There's actually hundreds, but let's just say there were 20. And let's say that each of those could be any level from one to five, where five would be a lot of that component and one would be not so much of that component. With those 20 flavor components, five different levels, how many types of wine could you actually make? 95 trillion. 95. 95 trillion different types of wine. A lot of and permutations. So 
It's a lot of permutations. What that means, if you tried 20 wines a day, it would take you the history of the current universe to try them all. That's, that's impossible. I think more practically what that means is that it's statistically almost impossible that any two batches of wine have ever been the same. Even from the same vintner, same varietal, two different years are going to be different in those components. I think that's part of what makes wine so exciting is that complexity is impossible to predict and reproduce perfectly. It's why wine is something that has to be grown and made in an artful way rather than something you can just manufacture in a chemical plant. I think along with that though comes that intimidation because how do you navigate that? Well, one way to navigate all those permutations is to enlist an expert. Phil talks with his old friend, Chris Sawyer, a Sonoma born and bred master sommelier. Chris, we were talking earlier about you being the ambassador to Sonoma County Wine. Well, I take a lot of pride in that. I've been a sommelier for over 30 years. I grew up here in many ways. Uh, Sonoma County grew up around me. It was very <laughs> different back in the old days, uh, to be really honest. I mean, I used to ride my BMX bike in vineyards and get shot at with rock guns. The focus wasn't really on wine. It was on kind of big products, Gallo and Corbel. And watching this whole area evolve, Russian River, Dry Creek, Petaluma Gap, Sonoma Valley, where we're at right now, and all these other areas and how it's been more defined and why the greatness of this area has really attracted so many people. When Phil and I met each other, but the great winery up on the mountain here, Carmenet, it was a small winery, but its impact was big. And Jeff Baker, one of the most unsung heroes of this industry, yeah. and that's how I met Phil. Yeah, my first mentor, along with Pam Starr, and you know, his legacy really lives on. His wines, I'm still drinking the Carmenets. When I first you know, started making Making wine in 1987, and they are still alive. And so my very first vintage in 87 being one of the best vintages, 91 is another one, and we open up those bottles now, yeah. and they still have so much life to them, so much vibrancy. Yeah. So the question is, as we have evolved into making wines that are higher in alcohol, more ripeness, are we missing the boat as far as making great wines because we have swung so far to well, overripeness? Well, that's, that's a good point. Parker had a lot of stuff to do sure. with this. It, sure. it was back when food culture was different, that we all eat steak and potatoes all the time. We don't anymore. And I think food culture has really changed where we're going. I mean, my son knows so much about sushi. I didn't even eat sushi till I was in my 20s. So we have to find the wines that pair with such a wider range of foods than we've ever experienced before. And for me as a sommelier, I'm always looking for things that complement these foods. But when you walk into a restaurant, you don't walk in for the sommelier. You walk in because the food is good. That's mm -hmm. the chef. And that's why when you came out with this brand, Inkadu, you know, I really fell in love with it because they complemented the foods. Chef Janine Falvo at the Lodge at Sonoma taught me so many lessons about food. I love great chefs, and my job is to work with them and to show them off. And I love it when people pat me on the back. I, I love, the greatest thing as a sommelier is getting a, a, a super hug, you know, from <laughs> someone that just really enjoyed their experience. And I taught them something that they'll never forget and that they'll use me as a reference or whatever it might take. But having like an arsenal of great wines to help me do that has really been a key for me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Hi folks, I don't know about you, but hearing all this makes me thirsty. Did you know that new members who join the Inkadu Wine Club receive 15% off their first order with a minimum of three bottles? Just click the link in the show notes to get started or enter code PODCAST15, that's the number 15, at checkout. And now back to Phil and Chris Sawyer. 
And I think that watching a movie with a great wine is a really great way to judge it, how it expands and where it's going. And wow, this is delicious versus an average wine, which just stays very put. And bad wines obviously start turning into vinegar. We've all had an experience like that where it's just not very good. It's kind of like you're watching these movies and you're swirling this wine and it's changing. Kind of like these great characters that we have in the movies. Wines have characters too. It's about how you pick the grapes. What are the grapes? Do the grapes have an identity? Being varietally correct is very important. If it says Pinot Noir or if it says Cab, it better taste like it. The Inca do Pinot Noir here. Pinot Noir is the base. You, it's got to taste like Pinot Noir. Absolutely. But you have different clones in there and you have mm -hmm. different sources that you're putting together. You're creating a super character there. Mm -hmm. That we really start to understand this wine more. As we really swirl it in the glass, we smell it again. It's just different. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot to show and that's right. the fun thing about these yeah. wines. Yeah, absolutely. We're tasting Russian River Pinot. So this is coming from the 2022, really unique vintage. Mm -hmm. And this has all the bright fruit that we really get from the Dijon clones in the Russian River Valley, but also the earthiness that we get from the Pomard. This type of spice component, almost mm -hmm. like Asian spice that we get in the soils and basically the whole terroir that's there. 2022, we ended up with really ripe flavors and ripe structure. We also had a really unusual situation where the conversion of sugar to alcohol was the lowest by a wide margin. No. And so there's brightness. I did Sonier on it, on every single wine. So it builds up the body and builds up that concentration, but we're talking about something that is so bright. Yeah. And I'm just excited yeah. about this. Pinot Noir is a very delicate grape, very thin-skinned, very vulnerable. And it takes a long time to make Pinot Noir this red. We look at the wine, this is a beautiful garnet color. This is a 100%, yeah, big score on that color. But it's really swirling this, and how does it smell? You're right, on this nose, it's bursting with raspberries. There's a lot of cherry flavor, which is a very Russian river kind of signature. And there's also Santa Rosa plum. I grew up eating these, these plums. Yeah, and so I know that plum flavor very, very well. We all have the ability to talk like I'm talking right now. We've all eaten these things. Sometimes people feel they can't say that it smells like, you know, M&M's, like the outside of M&M's. I don't know why. They're right. You know, they are Absolutely. right. So always be vocal about what you're smelling because you know what? You're probably right about that. It's just other people haven't really thought about that. Mm -hmm. But I do smell freshness in here. Freshness means that you're smelling what the vineyard was giving you. If we're just smelling a bunch of chocolate and vanilla, we don't grow those things. We grow grapes. Mm -hmm. If you're just smelling spices, then that's too much winemaker there. I mean, maybe if it's Zinfandel and you're smelling some black pepper and things like that, that's cool. But I really get the freshness here. Okay, so. So I looked at this and it's beautiful, but now I'm really swirling this wine. You really want to open it up. It's been trapped in this bottle for a while. You want to swirl, you want to open this up. I said this smells like raspberries and plums and cherries, and let's taste it. But don't take that first sip too seriously. Take it, swallow it, spit it out, do whatever you want. Forget that first sip. Anytime I judge wines, I always will taste it three times. The first one is just getting my mouth acclimated. The second one is being real about it. The mm -hmm. third one is finding out what complexity and what levels of flavors are really there. Once you get it in there, hold it in your mouth, kind of swirl it in your mouth. <sighs> Breathe a little air in. I'm not saying like you're gonna gargle, you guys. It's going to change a lot in your mouth. And then you wanna have the finish go down. What is the finish like? With Pinot, it's a little bit different. You're not yeah. looking at astringency so much. You're looking at the acid yeah. really being that backbone yeah. that really carries it yeah. to a long, long finish. Is it hard, all about tannins, or is it cascading down and making you go, I can't wait for the next sip.
We've all experienced drinking a wine without anything to eat. And then we've experienced drinking a wine with something that's paired reasonably well. And both things become better. So we should talk about tannins. Tannins are flavor components that are very important in wine, and they come from several places, including the grape skins, the grape seeds, and also things like the oak barrels that the wine is aged in. They're not proteins, they're not sugars, they're a compound class called polyphenols. Probably the most famous of these is resveratrol, which is the compound in wine that people think might be linked to aging and preservation, at least in very high doses. I think the jury's still out on the amount of wine that doesn't destroy your liver, if that's true. But these polyphenols, they react with proteins and cause proteins to change their function, and they cause proteins to stick together. So where that becomes important is you have saliva in the mouth, the motor oil of the mouth, it lubricates things, it makes everything work. It also contains some important enzymes that process food even in the mouth. Well, when these tannins get in there, they interact with those proteins, change their solubility right at the surface of your mouth. You start to feel a little dryness there. That's why that is. You're getting rid of that lubrication layer. And that's what we call astringency. And so a small amount of that is actually a very pleasing sensation. That's actually why wines have body or structure, we would say. But too much of that, it gets very dry and puckery, and that's usually a bad sensation. So one reason why having many tannic wines without food is not a pleasant experience is because you didn't give those tannins anything to do. All they have are the saliva proteins, so it's just going to be very dry and bitter. That's why really tannic wines, often the big reds like Cabernet Sauvignon or Petit Syrahs, go so well with heavy protein foods. That's your red meats, porks, and steaks because they provide all the protein. These wines then soften those proteins and it still leaves enough there to give you this sort of mouthfeel, but you actually round it out. And so that's why they're made for each other. A very difficult class of food often to pair wine with is spicy Asian food or Indian food. With a really tannic red, that can be a bad experience because the high level of spice, especially chili pepper spice, is hitting the pain receptor directly, your heat and pain receptor. Then you've got the tannins and the astringency and everything else, and it's just too overwhelming. Usually with those foods, you want to round that out with something lighter. But on the other end of the spectrum, imagine folks are just coming in your house. You're just starting with some light apps, maybe a charcuterie platter. I find it a challenge to find just the right lighter wine that you want to serve right when people get there before you start having a heavy meal. A rosé is a really great choice. They're made from red grapes, but instead of leaving them soaking on the skins for a long period of time, like Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir, they take them off the skins very quickly, usually within an hour or two, and that leaves a little bit of color and a little bit of flavor in there from the skins, but it doesn't give you that tannic structure. There's not a lot of tannins that are extracted. So that's going to make those wines much more friendly for lighter fare. To the extent that there are still tannins in there, one thing that you almost always have in appetizers is salt. And salt's maybe the most interesting of our flavor sensations. Wine doesn't itself contain much salt, but what happens is salt, first of all, will kind of counteract the effect of tannins. So tannic wines also are a little better with a little bit more salt. And so appetizers are taking the rest of that tannin down. The other thing that salt does is it enhances the sensations in all the other receptors. So if you have a rosé that's going to hit your uh, acidity receptor, it's a bright, nice acidity uh, to it, but it also has a little bit of sweetness perhaps left in it. Salt is going to enhance both of those, and so you're going to get a more rounded experience for that. So rosés are a great choice. I love light reds for that. Really light Pinot Noir is terrific. Pinots have such a wide range of flavors, so they can be anything from fruity to earthy. That can match with different kinds of cheese. That's probably my favorite. You can do a, a lighter Sauvignon Blanc. Those wines, most of them, maybe not Pinot, are served colder. 
right? I would encourage people to try serving their white wines a little less cold than we commonly do. Most people keep white wine in the refrigerator, take it out and drink it right away. That's perfectly fine if you like it that way, but... So that's around 37 degrees. What's a, what's a better temperature? Yeah, so let it warm up a little bit, maybe into the 45, 48 degree range, mm-hmm. and you'll get more of the flavors. So lower temperatures increase the acidity sensation. Same exact liquid at a higher temperature, the acidity sensation will go down and a lot of the aromas will come up. So you'll get more fruit and more of the, the nuanced aromas out of that if by, just by warming it up a little bit. So just take it out a little bit before you serve it, not ice cold. Red wines, I would also encourage people to drink those slightly less warm than they do. Generally, people serve red wines at room temperature. But room temperature has a wide range. Yeah, it could be right? 75 degrees. Exactly. And in my opinion, uh, a little on the warm side, I actually like a lot of reds a little cooler, probably around 60. Low 60s is good, which tends to tone them down just a little bit. And so you can focus on the whole range of flavors. If they get too warm, I get more tannin out of it. I encourage everybody to find the right temperature for them, and it might vary for different wines. That's part of the fun of running the experiments. The 95 trillion is definitely an underestimate for sure. So Chris and I, we started off with the 2022 Russian River Pinot, and we also have the 2021 Peters Vineyard, and tasting that second because it's a little bit broader shoulders, has more structure to it. Then we're gonna move right into the Cabernets, and we have two different Cabernets here. We have our Sonoma County Cabernet, which is a blend of about five different vineyards that goes into this, and then our top cab, which is the Ansar, just a spectacular vineyard, mainly from the fruit up in the mountains on the Mayakamas range. Then we finish off with Humbaba, which is what got Chris and I together. Humbaba! When I started Ankadu, it's one of the first wines Chris really latched on to. I, I bought years it. Ago. I, I ran it by the glass at the lodge at Sonoma. I, I couldn't stop wanting to promote it because I really love Syrah and Petite Syrah. Let's talk about that in a few minutes because yeah, I love that home bubba. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we're going into the Peter's Vineyard, which now is my third vintage going into it. And Peter's Vineyard, located in the Russian River, Sebastopol. To me, it's one of the top flight vineyards. I got to agree with you. This is Randy Peter's amazing guy. It's about knowing the people that grow these grapes. I definitely know where they get this fruit from. And uh, Peter's Vineyard is very important. This one, it just has more structure. It wants to be with meats. It Mm. wants to be with eggplant parmesan. It wants to be with things like this that are so good. It's just a great wine. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a fantastic vineyard. I was really excited to pick this up. When I first spoke to Randy, it's like, yeah, I think I have maybe two tons for you. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll take it. But at least got my foot in the door. Yeah. And so now we're actually producing a little bit more of this. But it's a foundation of our Russian River blend. And as a standalone wine, it's fantastic. The Peter stands apart. It does have that structure. It has that broad shoulder. It has a little bit more strength. It's got some muscle to it. If we're doing a sit-down meal and we know that the rack of lamb or something of a big mess, magnitude, I would definitely do the Peters with that 100% because mm-hmm. it just has that full-bodied and it's just beautiful as it is. It tastes like Pomard should taste. The original cuttings came from a specific vineyard in the Pomard region and that's what Dr. Olmo did is he went there and he grabbed this and we know exactly where it came from that I think really exemplifies what Pomard is. For us, it's really at the cornerstone of our portfolio that we're really building with Pinot. 
Let's taste the 2021 cab though first. It's a very spirited vintage. On the nose, I'm getting a lot of blue fruit on this too. Mm -hmm. There's like a little bit of that cassis and there's mm -hmm. a little bit of the blueberry, but it's almost like a dried blueberry. But right. you're getting it right there on the nose. Amazing. Yeah, yeah there's a little bit of the dried herb. Um, so like dried sage and component, which I think is really important for of the varietal. So I've tried to maintain that. And I think that you know, a lot of winemakers will try to ripen that out, get rid of the, of the greenness. And to yeah. me, that, a little bit of greenness, a little bit of that is the typicity of Cabernet. And I'm not looking to make an overripe cab that is just going to be just all about stewed fruit. Yeah. You know? You're showing us this is super Sonoma County. This is what Sonoma County's greatest impression is mm -hmm. in this glass. Mm -hmm. Sonoma County is close to the ocean. When we talk about Bordeaux, Bordeaux is right next to the ocean. The only thing separating the Bordeaux Cabernet vines from the ocean is the largest sand dune in all of Europe. So we have something that's very common with Bordeaux. So we are actually the same kind of distance. We are getting these characters, but we also shut down at night, and that's where the acidity comes mm -hmm. in here. I mean, I think this is an elegant, sophisticated wine, to be really honest. I don't want to say this is a bold wine, and I think this is why it's so food-friendly. Yeah, so this is 2018, and this is the Onsar. So this is a blend of about three different vineyards, mainly in the Mayacamas Mountain Range that runs between Napa and Sonoma, yeah. all the way up into Lake County and Mendocino County. Yep. And so the range goes all the way up to about 2,400, 2,500 foot elevation. When you get above 1,700 feet, 1,800 feet or so, yeah. the UV becomes more intense. And so the grape is trying to protect the seed, basically, from the UV, and so they grow thicker skins. So with that, you're gonna get more color, more richness from Napa. You also are gonna get a little more intensity of tannin, of the, of the astringency. The Ansar is Sonoma County, but we're talking about a hillside vineyard, vines that really actually struggle, and that's a good thing. Actually, you don't want them to give you too much yield. You want them to be working hard to put that fruit kind of components in there to give you things that are gonna separate it for the ones in the valley floor, which are easier to grow. They have nothing but space to go downwards. They were all fruit trees in the old days, and they just pulled them out and we put these things in there. So these can go way down there. You get to the mountains, a whole different story up there. And that's why Ansar really needs respect. As a winemaker, it's that balance. How do I balance yeah. that off? That stringency will have to have that richness really to balance that off. It's really important. Those wines, you get intensity. One thing about the Mayakamas, especially where you and I met, Phil, is that we compare it to Napa Valley because Napa Valley has the Vaca Range. The Vaca Range is facing the same exact way. It's facing west. But the fact is that it's got the Mayakamas between it and the ocean. Mm -hmm. And you're getting the last sun as the sun is setting, it's hitting this Sonoma County side of right. the, the Mayakamas, which is a very important thing because we have a lot longer period of time that it actually ripens during the day. It doesn't get the sun in the morning. And this is a 2018, you mm -hmm. guys, and this one is still young and is still vibrant and wants to expand in the glass right. or a decanter. Yeah, you know? it's going to evolve. Yeah, I mean, the era of the Great Liberator, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah so That's why I would do a whole dinner based on the Anzar. It just wants to be my friend for a long <laughs> period of time that evening. Yeah. yeah. Like Phil. Yeah. Right. You know, there's a little bit of uh, bias here holding this wine back, Phil. This reminds me of when we first met. This wine really reminds me Speaks of the Mayakamas and Moon Mountain right. region. So when Chris and I first met, we didn't really know that we knew each other back then. So we kind of pieced it together several years later. It's yeah. like, oh, 
well, yes, of course we knew each other. I, I knew we made good wine. I was watching him way before he started this brand. So, right. Phil, it's a pleasure to pour this wine for you. This is a wine where Phil and I became <laughs> super friends. This is the Humbaba. Me pouring it for him is cool. This is uh, 50% Syrah and 50% Petite Syrah. Petite Syrah and Cabernet have a lot in common. They are both crosses of two different grapes. Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc were grafted together and crossed together, and they became a super grape called Cabernet Sauvignon. Petite Syrah is Syrah and a different grape called Pellersan. This grape was the second coming of Zinfandel. Zinfandel is California's state grape, and it was here with the gold miners. They were here, they brought it, it was successful. Petite Syrah was hit number two. It has a big part in my heart, and when we talk about Syrah, we go back to Persia 2,000 years ago. So Cabernet is a good grape. It's actually only like 400 years old. When you're talking about 2,000-year-old grape that has been documented, that's Syrah, and its little offspring is Petite Syrah, and they're both in this bottle. Right, exactly. I, when I started Enkidu, I had you know, four different vineyards, two different Syrah, two different Petit Syrah, all vineyard designates are all really high quality. You know, I had quite a bit of juice and I basically said, you know, this is the time to do this blend I've been enamored with for so long. And so I created Humbaba. It was an immediate hit. With me too. Yeah, yeah with, with Chris, I, I loved absolutely. it. I, I bought this the minute you came out with right. this. I bought this, brought it on my wine list. Um, I loved it. It went with so many different types of food. Yeah, you know, so it has that Syrah that really kind of takes, I think, the yeah. forward yeah. You know, position on this, but you have that structure that Petit Syrah adds. Petit Syrah gives it focus. Yeah. yeah yeah, I think that Syrah can be really amazing because it can grow in hot climate and cool climate. Right. And that's amazing. Yeah. So Pinot Noir, cool climate only. Cabernet, hot climate only. Syrah, throw it in both. And it's interesting. So really, I think what you've done here is create a super blend of these two kinds of components. And I love the fact that Lake County is a big part of this. And uh, you're basically defining what Lake County is inside this glass. It's a vineyard I've been working with since 2005. I always wanted to produce a wine from up there because I spent my, my childhood up there. Oh. Yeah. So this is a vineyard that, that was developed by my friends that I grew up with. Well, you know, you get up there and it's all this red, rocky, volcanic soil. Uh, above Clear Lake that Chris was talking about yeah. is a volcano, Mount Kanonkai. Yeah. You know, so we get the breezes that come up off of that, the lake that come up the slope, and the Diener Ranch is about 2,100 foot elevation, but it's surrounded by brush as well. Yeah. So you have all of this flora. When you talk about toar, flora is part of that, that toar. Yeah. That's there. I, there's an herbal aspect to this, which is mountain herbs. Mm -hmm. And you can taste it here. Yeah, get a little bit yeah. of that garik. Yeah, yeah. garik. Yeah, garik. Yeah. Garik, that's super Frenchy for herbal. Yeah. yeah. So, Phil, this has been a, a complete pleasure. You and I have been friends for so long, but wine can really change your life. When I brought in the Humbaba, your finished wine that was amazing, that really represented your love for wine and your passion for wine, and I was sharing it with other people. Right. But it's about telling other people about that story. You heard this amazing thing where we're sharing our hearts, our passion for it. You and I were encouraged by people that really did move us. When you go to another country or to another region, you have a common bond. It's the same kind of spirit. It's all about sharing. It's all about the love, this world that we've entered and the products that we make and that we share. Cheers, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah all of There you go. There's one more part of our story. Join us in our next and last episode for a dinner party. We'll talk with Phil, Catherine, Matt, and Becca about food, family, and the future of Inkadoon. 
I'm Dana Elmquist. Thanks for joining.